want to ask you for a moment to agree in your heart with me as I pray. Let's exercise faith together for our time in the word. Father, we kneel before you from whom every family and in heaven and on earth derives its name. Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us this morning with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ, Jesus the Christ, may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray, Lord, that we, being rooted and established in love, would have power, together with all of your holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Lord, I pray that you'd awaken in us the ability to know things that are surpassed, that surpass knowing. Go to a deeper place in us that we would know not just with our minds, but with our spirits, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, blow us away this morning, Lord. According to your power that's at work within us, to you be glory in the church. Glory in Crestmont Alliance Church. Glory in this gathering. Glory in our lives. Glory in our families. And most of all, glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you know this morning that as we pray God's word, he is going to answer according to his word. Can we put our hands together in faith? We thank you, Lord, because you will answer us today. You will answer us today. Amen. Amen. So today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 20. You can turn there in your Bibles or get there on your phone or it will be on the screen behind me. Um, Just to remind you where we are, I think we've been saying it for a number of months now, but it is the theme of the latter half of Matthew and the rest of the Gospels, that Jesus is now traveling with his disciples toward Jerusalem, and as he does, he speaks of his death more freely. You have to realize Jesus didn't stumble into some political trap that he didn't realize was being set for him. It wasn't an accident, a miscalculation that led him into the hands of his accusers. Jesus knew where he was going by this point. He knew what his mission was. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit. And as he goes more than once, he's telling his disciples what's going to happen. It says in the book of Acts um, at one point that what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem happened according to God's predestined will. That this was the plan of God all along. As tragic as it was, there was no other way for Jesus to accomplish the salvation of the human race. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going. We're going to read in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17. And as is sometimes our custom, if you'd stand to your feet in honor of God's word, and we'll read together. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, 
We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You may be seated. All right, there is a recurring theme in this point in the gospel where Jesus now is doing more than only performing miracles and delivering the demonized, but he is imparting to his disciples an attitude, a disposition of the heart that he wants uh, to go deep down inside of them. And it has a lot to do with service, which I realized was a theme for you last week as you were looking at the Gospels when Steve preached as well. And that theme is going to continue on through today. So uh, the sons of Zebedee are James and John. They're two of Jesus's uh, disciples and their mom, this is such a mom passage, you know, their mom comes and says, what about my babies? <laughs> you know? She wants to know about them. Now, now this uh, mother who's coming and asking, this is a bold request to be asking this, and she certainly would have felt like she was um, exercising faith. As a matter of fact, she is exercising a kind of faith because she is affirming that Jesus is a king and will have a kingdom, and she is rightly perceiving those things. So there's something to be commended there. But she's asking not only that the 12 disciples will have a special place of honor in the kingdom, but that her two sons will have an even greater place of honor among the 12. So she asks for this special place. Now, even though she's rightly perceiving some things about the kingdom of God, she's only seeing the kingdom, as the disciples were at this point, only seeing the kingdom in terms of political and social revolution, in terms of Jesus overthrowing particularly Gentile forces, the Roman Empire that had conquered Israel a long time ago. They're seeing a liberator who's going to liberate you know, the people of Israel. And all of those things are true in a sense, but not in the, not in the way that they're perceiving it. And you can tell that because as Jesus increasingly talks about the necessity of suffering, how the cross is something that he's being called to, um, they don't have a place for this in their view of Jesus. They don't understand why this king would suffer in this way. So she's asking for a special place and kind of the glorious revolution that she sees the kingdom is going to bring. And Jesus responds by asking if James and John are going to be able to drink the cup 
that he's going to drink. This is Old Testament imagery that the prophets often use to describe God's wrath or to describe suffering. And for Jesus, as he's going to the cross um, to experience the wrath of God poured out onto him for the sins of the world, so we wouldn't have to experience that. And as he goes into this uh, season of suffering, um, Jesus is saying, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you going to be able to suffer with me? This is a bold statement that Jesus is asking, but it fits with the rest of what the New Testament teaches. Because as it turns out, the call to suffer in discipleship, the call to be willing to suffer in the pursuit of love, in the pursuit of the kingdom's rule and reign on the earth, is not something for just the most special disciples, the most pious religious disciples who get the places of greatest honor in the kingdom. As it turns out, this call to suffer is the price to follow Jesus at all. Not just for the most special ones, but at all. And even still, there's something about that that we very often forget as we look at the call of discipleship. The theologian and author Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to talk about cheap grace, that we like to think about discipleship without any cost. But in fact, Jesus is very honest with those that he calls that there is a cost. He gives an upfront cost, and the cost is to die. Now, that may sound really heavy and sobering, and in many ways it is, but you will experience more freedom in your Christian life if you come to terms with this early on. As a matter of fact, it is the only way to experience joy in discipleship. See, when you're willing to say, look, I'm a dead disciple. I don't live to myself anymore, my own will, my own way. Whatever God wants is what I want. I give my will over to him completely. It takes out of your Christian experience this constant negotiating with God to try to get benefits from him with as little cost as possible. It's exhausting to be bargaining with God all the time. And God wants to free us from that. The only way to experience joy, even in the midst of the suffering, is to say, God, whatever you want, I trust you. I trust your character. I was singing in church this morning that you're good. Those just aren't words in a song. I believe it. And so wherever you call me, I'm willing to go. That lets that emotional bargaining process die down so that you can just enjoy God, whether it's in a season of blessing or it's in a season of suffering. And this is the, the message of the New Testament. Jesus had already told his disciples in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We've read this together already. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. The only people who find real life, who find eternal life, are the people who are willing to let go of their life as they understand it and try to control it and manage it. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the reason we can go to the cross with Jesus is because we know that God is good. This is a complete abandonment to the goodness of God. The only way we will ever experience victory in the Christian life, joy in the Christian life, power in the Christian life, is this experience of Christ living through us 
which requires a dead will to the will of God, to come alive to the will of God and to die to our own will. It's the secret of the Christian life. See, friends, the gospel is not just about reforming you or managing your behavior. It's about calling you to death so that you can experience resurrection power in Jesus. Amen? That's what God has called us to. Then Jesus goes on to tell these disciples in response to their quest, he says, you, as it turns out, you are going to end up drinking the cup I drink because this is the cup all disciples drink. But then he tells them that in the end, the Father will determine greatness in the fullness of the kingdom by a different standard than humanity defines greatness. In the fullness of the kingdom, we are going to be shocked, I think, at a number of things. First of all, I think we're going to be shocked at who's in and who's out. Because we tend to view people in really superficial ways and draw lines around people, but God sees the heart. He sees what's really going on. Um, I spent like two hours um, on a beach last week with a homeless guy, and uh, he was selling waters on the beach, and I walked up and down you know, the beach with him, and I'm telling you, this guy has issues in his life. There's you know, problems for sure. He is no you know, scholarly academic theologian, but I believe the guy I spent with has a childlike faith in Jesus. And friends, that's all that's needed. You know? And so we're going to be surprised at who is leading the parade in the kingdom. But more than that, I think we're going to be surprised at who gets called great and who gets called least. Some of the people who get the most attention, the most visibility in the church will be least in the kingdom because God is drawn to something different than the superficial pictures that we give one another. Well, when the rest of the disciples hear that James and John, you know, are using their mom to try to get this special place in the kingdom, these are grown men, mind you, but this is what's happening. They become jealous, so Jesus calls them to himself to correct them, and he tells them, the world plays a status game. He says, you know how it works with the Gentiles. In, in the day in which Jesus lived, the Roman Empire was all about status. People were in very clear social classes. You really, it was very hard to move social classes, almost never happened. Power was clearly defined and reinforced through abuse or violence. Um, and so Jesus knows that this is how it works, and he's saying, the movement that I'm starting, the movement that I'm beginning, which is a movement of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth, will not have at its core manipulation and control for personal advancement. He's saying there's going to be a different way of leadership, a different way of doing life with one another, a different way of relationship than the world typically adopts to achieve its purposes. So he tells them, not so with you. It's not going to be this way. And then he holds himself out as an example. He says, I, and Jesus is the greatest person, not just on earth, but in the center of the universe, right? And he says, I is the greatest. This is his great claim that he is God in the flesh. He says, I have not come to be served, but to serve. God shows up on earth not to wield his power, but to serve. It's a complete reversal 
of how the world does things. And the argument here that Jesus is saying, he says elsewhere, right, that no servant is above his master, saying if this is what the master does, if this is what the person who's the greatest does, then what do you think the call on your life is? So he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then he says, to give my life as a ransom for many. It's not just that Jesus is going to serve you know, in the ways that we sometimes think of service. For instance, it is amazing that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It's amazing that he embraced the poor. But Jesus says, my service is going to go to the point of death. See, my life is going to be a ransom. The picture here is that humanity is being held captive by Satan and sin and death, and there's a price that needs to be paid for the freedom of the human race. And Jesus says, I'm not just going to do some nice things for you. I'm going to free you by paying with my life. I'm going to serve to the point of death. I'm going to completely empty myself for you. So, in this passage... Who is God? Well, Jesus is our servant king. Um, This is different than how the Gentiles do it in the passage. It's different than how Rome does it. It's different than how the United States of America does it. It's different than any human form of leadership. You would be hard-pressed to find any system of political power or influence or you know, hero worship of any kind that embraces this as its value, right? That the king becomes the servant, that the greatest becomes the least. It's a complete reversal of human relationship. And it has huge implications for us. If Jesus is our servant king, that's who he is. If his power is somehow wrapped up in his vulnerability, if his power is wrapped up in becoming nothing, Well, then that means for us, who I am in light of who God is, is that I am a servant. This was the point, I believe, that was made last week. I'm a servant because this is what Jesus, in in his final teachings, as he's talking to his disciples, and they've experienced incredible power at this point. They've laid hands on the sick. They've seen them recover. They've cast out demons. They've seen the power of the kingdom. They've watched Jesus raise people from the dead. But now Jesus is surprising them by inserting this attitude into the equation that power actually gets released in the context of vulnerability and weakness. It's as we embrace that that we see the real power of God, which is love, right? Now, here's what I really want to sink in for us this morning. When I say that we are servants, I am not talking about something that we do. I'm saying we are servants as a matter of identity. That is to say, we are servants because this is who we are. And that shift in thinking has everything to do with your capacity to keep serving, even when it doesn't seem like it's yielding the results that you want it to. Um, This isn't a perfect analogy, but speaking of presidents and kings, I was thinking about how when we elect the president of the United States, There's something about that position that comes on the person for those four years or eight years that, at least for that period of time, seems to shift their identity in social relationships. It's it's an intense job, right? So the president is the president even when he's sleeping, right? It doesn't go away. There's a sense in which that job is not only what you do from nine to five, right? 
But for the time you live in the White House, it is who you are, right? And the nation has a claim on you. You can get waking up, woken up in the middle of the night, right? And guess what? You get woken up at the 3 in the morning and there's some kind of national security crisis, you're the president of the United States, right? You don't say, actually, I don't clock in until 9, right? And so it's a different kind of job that way. It's an identity-shaping job for the time that the person is there. And I would say that's the case for us, too. It's not just that we do service. It's not just that we sign up for service projects or volunteer in the children's ministry or the nursery at the church. It's that we are servants at our core. It's that we can't help but be this. Now, why is that the case? Well, first of all, it's because our master was a servant. And when the greatest one in the universe becomes a servant, he removes from the place of service the shame and the stigma and the fear that often makes us not engage service in the first place. See, one reason he's saying the Gentiles do it one way, I want you to do another, is because he knows that servants and slaves in the Roman world are not respected people. These are not positions that people aspire to. If anything, they fear that they're going to fall into this state, this social class of society. But when the greatest one embraces it, it changes the dignity of that position. So that now being a servant isn't something to be ashamed of or afraid of. It's something to take joy in because the one who was the greatest did it. You see? Um, I've been thinking a lot. You've probably been able to tell about correlations in this gospel attitude and some of the attitudes that surface in the civil rights movement. And I was thinking about one this last week that a genius thing that happened in the civil rights movement was that incarceration is some of what was most fearful for African Americans, particularly in the South, because in the collapse of slavery, what came into play was this, you know, these laws that were unjustly aimed at African Americans. It was very easy to end up in jail. But when the leader of the civil rights movement is willing to go to jail, right, which he was, and many of the leaders were willing to get arrested over and over again as they engaged nonviolent social change. As they were willing to get arrested, something happened. It took away the shame and the stigma of getting arrested. And before you knew it, people were lining up to get arrested in protest of unjust laws because this shameful thing had now become a badge of honor. This was now something to be celebrated. And this is how it is in our society, right? Many of those leaders are passing very quickly in their old age, but the ones who are still alive, if you heard their story and they said how many times they were willing to be arrested, there's a kind of honor that's imparted to them. That's what Jesus did with the status of being a servant says, it's getting flipped. I'm the greatest. I'm willing to do it. And so there's nothing for you to be ashamed of now in that. You can engage it fully and not be afraid of it. Not be afraid of it. And secondly, the, the reason why we don't have to be afraid of the status is because, or the reason it's true, is because Jesus paid a ransom. See, that is, we were slaves of another house. We were slaves of the oppressor. We were slaves of the devil, of sin and Satan. And Jesus paid for us 
with his blood to rescue us from that house. Now we are not servants of that system, but we're servants of the one true God. We're still servants. We're still servants. Our lives are still owned, but our lives are owned by a far better person than the devil, right? By a person who has at his heart um, our good, our welfare, who aims all of the blessing and the resources at heaven toward us. And so this is why we can say, I'm a servant without fear. Now, when I went into ministry, one thing I realized very soon is that God began to surface all of the bad reasons that I went into service. And, and some of you may just feel like apathetic towards service, like maybe that's not been part of your experience, but I bet many in this room do have a desire to serve. And as soon as you do, you'll find that God will surface in your heart bad motivations. Here's what he's doing. He's surfacing those motivations so that you can tell where servanthood is not a matter of identity, but it's just something you do, all right? So what is God saying to me? Well, God is going to surface my insecurities, my motivations, so that I can see where servanthood is not my identity, it's just something that I've decided to do. And if service is just something that you do, your tank is going to run out really, really quickly. See, here's some of the things God surfaced in me. I realized that some of my service was rooted in a desire to avoid God's disappointment. Some of my service was out of a desire to prove to myself that I was better than what I actually thought I was to project to myself an image that said I was decent or worthy of love or something like that, a desire to be noticed by other people was another one for me, a desire to be affirmed by those that I was serving. Even if other people didn't see me doing it, if I served someone, I sure wanted them to be thankful because at least my reward would be there. You know, or if not thankful, at least it would seem that my service pushed them in the right direction or accomplished some good thing in their life right? That I could find my reward from there. And there's other bad motivations too. I've seen that some people serve out of, out of a desire for control. They're the first to sign up for everything, but as soon as they lose control, they don't want to do it anymore, you know? And, and serving out of a desire to control is a way to control people or control outcomes and find a way to serve in that way. Um, or uh, they don't really serve at all because it seems like there's shame surrounding that status. Uh, Looking for other people to serve them, but they're not looking for it for themselves. All of these things uh, will surface in us. Now, here's the thing. If you had asked me, Joel, do you serve with any of these bad motivations? I would have told you absolutely not because I knew better. I served because I love Jesus. Come on. What are you asking me, right? I serve because I want to give Jesus back, you know, what he's given to me. I want to, you know, all this stuff. But here's the real test. It's not on if you can answer the question the right way. It's on the attitudes that surface in us when we serve and it doesn't go as planned. See, I never would have told you that I served out of a motivation to appease God's disappointment. But then why did I serve with such zeal and so much energy, and all the time wondered if God loved me. All the time was feeling self-loathing. All the time felt like I would never be able to do enough. 
Why? Well, it's because there's a faulty motivation for service. I never would have told you that I was serving to be noticed by other people, but then why did I sometimes develop this self-righteous attitude when I was the only one who was serving and no one was seeing it and this thought would come in, well, how come I'm the only one doing this? How come other people don't work as hard as I work? Why is that attitude there if I don't believe it? See, I never would have said that I was serving to get something out of the people that I was serving, but how come service felt so unfulfilling so many times when it didn't produce the result I wanted or I didn't get thanked? You know, why was it hard to keep going? Well, it's because underneath the shiny exterior of what it looks like to serve like we know we're supposed to is an identity issue. And this is what God wanted to get to. See, here's how you keep serving. Even when the results aren't what they should be, when you're not getting thanked. Here's how you keep serving when, uh, you know, it feels unfulfilling. You recognize that you were served by the servant king. And that this has changed not just your behavior, but it's changed your very identity. It's who you are. You can't help but be that. Whether the circumstances are good or bad, I'm not saying that service sometimes isn't hard. I'm just saying that when we're rooted in God's love and in the service that we've received from him that ultimately led to him dying on the cross, there's a compulsion in us to keep serving, whether we're in control or not, whether it makes a difference or not, whether we feel like appreciated or not. We're just able to keep serving. So what are we going to do about it? Well, I think that our response to this passage is to define service as greatness. This is radical, especially among Christians, because we have a tendency to define power as greatness. Do you know, um, and we're a church that very openly embraces the Holy Spirit, and I love that, and I love the Holy Spirit's power, but do you know, nowhere in Scripture is power the definition of greatness or maturity. See, really immature people can move in incredible power because it's just a gift, right? I'm talking on the level of character. And God doesn't really just zap us and change our character. I've seen anointing and power come on people like that. But many times, he will form and shape and mold over time our character He'll surface these bad motivations. So we have to wrestle with him and get back to his love again and again and again. So I think it would be radical for us to define service as greatness in ourselves. You know, so it's like even if I don't have the attention, even if I'm not, doesn't seem like I'm as powerful or influential as the person next to me, um, I can still be great in the kingdom of God because I'm embracing my identity as a servant. And to see greatness in other people that way, I love it when God pours out his power, but we have a tendency to ooh and awe over people who move in extraordinary power and giftings. This is a problem that's present in Scripture too. Read the books of First and Second Corinthians. We'll see the same thing was happening. But I'll tell you what, the more I walk with Jesus, the less I ooh and awe over power, and the more I ooh and awe over character. Right? People who are willing to serve, whether they get attention or not, whether, no matter what happens, they're willing to serve. Those are the people I'll go into a battle with. 
Those are the people I'll go. I'll tell you what, I would go to battle with those people even more than people who pride themselves in just having a lot of knowledge about the Bible. See, that's another one. And listen, I love power, and we ought to grow in knowledge. But I'm just saying neither in and of themselves are markers of maturity. You can know a lot about Scripture and be a really immature Christian, right? But I'll go to war with someone. I don't mean against them. I mean with them. (laughs) I'll go to war with someone whose life has been formed in character that leads them to service. See, this is, this is the irresistible call of Jesus. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. See, it's so hard to resist a love like that. You know, he just keeps coming with it again and again. As I close, we gotta be done. But as I close, just wanna share with you a quote that I read uh, not too long ago. I was looking up some things about slavery in the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world. And, you know, it's interesting because nowhere in scripture do the New Testament writers call for a violent revolution to overthrow the institution of slavery. And in our nation's history, that misled some Christians to think that God endorsed slavery. But that's not true either. Here's what the authors of Scripture do that is radical. They insert love into the institution of slavery. And so you start to see these commands in the New Testament that encourage masters to view their slaves as brothers. Now, if you really do that, how long are you going to keep that person enslaved? There's this insistence that they be viewed as equals before the cross, and this is why not long after the writing of the New Testament, uh, the early believers began to do some radical things with slavery, one of which was to sell themselves into slavery so that somebody else could experience freedom. Do you realize in the Roman world the prize that free citizenship was? Because most of the empire was made up of slaves. It was the largest social class. Most people in the Roman Empire were owned by another human being. So to gain your citizenship was a big deal. To get freedom was a big deal. And yet we find Clement of Rome, he's a bishop in the church. He writes this to the church in Corinth. In the year A.D. 130, he says, many gave themselves into bondage that they might ransom others from slavery. Many sold themselves into slavery and provided food for others with the price they received for themselves. Many were willing to give up their freedom. How does that happen? That's not just some volunteer program, friends. That's a shaping of identity in the love of God. I can't help but be a servant. That's what my life is about, and I would give up my freedom, the early Christians said, if it meant that somebody else could have it. I'll tell you what, a church that operates in that kind of love will be irresistible to the world. You want to talk about a church growth program? There it is. Love each other that radically, and we won't have enough seats for people. I can tell you that. Love each other that fully, we won't have enough space. No, because people are longing for that kind of love. They're longing for a love that is more than just what the world offers with some religion slapped on it. They want to see something deeper. And the early Christians got this. You know, over the years that I've been in ministry, if music could come up, music could come up. <laughs> music, all right. 
<laughs> I don't use names anymore. I just... <laughs> um, here I am talking about love. And, okay. I just, I just want to end with this. In the years that I've been in ministry, um, I've processed with a lot of people over the years how they don't feel appreciated, how they don't feel noticed, you know, how they wish that someone had, had reached out to them. I've talked with people who quit serving after they couldn't be in control anymore or quit serving when they felt like it wasn't making a difference. Um, I've talked to a lot of people like that. That's human nature, and it is part of pastoral ministry to love in those instances. I, I fully embrace that. What I've seen less is people clamor over one another to get to the opportunity to disadvantage themselves so that somebody else could be advantaged. Even in the church, I've seen that far less. It's to say, you know what? I want to be, first, I want to be great as the kingdom defines it. So sign me up. Let me serve. Don't worry about what I want. It's about what they want. I've seen that less. But I believe that God is doing something special among us. Our intercessors in different ways have shared something with me over the last few months I've really taken and held on in prayer. And it's this, that in the season that we're going into, humility is more than just a virtue. It's a strategy that the Lord is giving us to take down the enemy. Um, one person said it to me this way, it's like in the season that we're in that when someone's moving in pride, the enemy can see them in full view. When it's about their rights, the enemy can see them. But when they embrace humility, it's like a cloak of invisibility comes over them to the enemy. And so we can just keep walking in greatness, in kingdom greatness. See, I think wherever God's taking us as a church, it's not gonna be just the outpouring of explosive power on us. And I'm praying for that because I love that. It's not gonna be just the outpouring of explosive power on us that accomplishes the mission. God has poured out power all over the earth and those movements didn't last. Here's what's going to do it, is humility. Humility will let us carry more power. It'll let us carry more influence. It'll let us keep making room at the table. And it'll make us a doorway through which God can reach the neighborhoods and the nations. Amen?